This episode of the Black Doctors Podcast is brought to you by Empath IQ. Empath IQ provides reputation management and marketing tools to improve relationships between you and your patients. Their software platform encourages and curates positive reviews, enhancing your online reputation. Visit www.empathiq.io and mention the show to receive a special discount just for signing up. Check out the show notes for a link to their website. The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I'm Stephen, your host. This episode, I'm so excited to be speaking with Dr. Carmel Vogel. She is an advanced pediatric cardiologist and she's currently practicing in Maryland. She's also an, a fellow alumni of Howard University College of Medicine. She was a year ahead of me back in medical school and uh, even was my senior on my uh, one of my medicine rotations. So Dr. Bogle, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That podcast is so cool. I've been listening to it. I feel honored to join you. Awesome. Well, I definitely want to get more perspective from the, the pediatrics folks. I've, I've neglected the kids and, and that can't happen. Don't forget about the children. <laughs> no, you some good. So, Carmel, uh, let's start with your story. What initially drew you into the field of medicine or, or into healthcare? Um, I think my dad was the big inspiration for me for medicine. He was um, sick a lot growing up. He was a, a black male that grew up in Nashville, Tennessee in the 1930s, and he had rheumatic fever. Um, and at that time, he didn't get medical care because he wasn't available to get medical care. And then um, as time passed on, he didn't really go to the doctor and then had rheumatic heart disease and subsequent congestive heart failure. So I have a lot of memories in the hospital when he would um, have acute on chronic heart failure. So it really inspired me to want to go into medicine and um, go into cardiology, too. So I think they made it a great experience of someone where you're in the hospital lab, but they made it not a scary face, uh, place, but like an um, interesting place to learn. Yes. Yeah, so how old were you when you kind of realized that he was sick and that he was going in and out of the hospital? I remember, I think my earliest memory is like six or seven or so. It feels like um, he went in pretty often. So me and one of my friends, like when we did our coloring books, we did the Grey's Anatomy coloring books. So we were like nerd alerts early in life. <laughs> <laughs> And that was in Tennessee? No, I grew up here. So he's from Tennessee, but um, it, it was in Silver Spring where he would come to, come to a lot of Washington Hospital Center was his like go-to. And obviously that was an incredible impact on your life at a young age. And initially when you went to college at the University of Pennsylvania, you studied nursing. Did that kind of draw from those uh, formative experiences? Yeah, for sure. And um, in high school, we had a, a medical what the term is called, but a medical, if you had an interest in medicine, you could do medicine early in life. So in high school, they taught us medical um, terminology. I worked with child life specialists then, and I became a certified nursing assistant in high school. And then I went to college and um, was learning about like poli-sci as a pre-med and all these kind of general courses. And then my friend was in nursing school and was talking about her patient interactions and learning anatomy and physiology and I decided to transfer to the nursing school after my first year because I just wanted to do more patient interaction at the time. And then my plan was to do pre-med nursing. And then I learned more about nurse practitioners and clinical nurse specialists. So 
worked as a nurse for a couple of years to decide which area of healthcare I wanted to go into. Yeah, so interesting. So I think for five years, you said you worked as a nurse. And what kind of specialization did you do? Were you med surge or? I worked in, um, yeah, I worked, I was all peds. I worked in pediatric emergency room at um, CHOP, a hospital in Philadelphia. And then I came back to this, um, the DMV area and worked in pediatric sedation while I was kind of finishing up my pre-med, pre-med classes. And after finishing college, so what courses did you need to finish up in order to apply to medical school? I took um, I took biology, um, orgo, and physics. I think were the courses, and I think I took a genetics class too, just to try and try and get them to like me a little bit more in medical school. <laughs> um, so after practicing as a nurse for a couple years, you know what kind of led you to continue on into medical school. I think I liked working with patients, but with nurses, you work really, really closely with patients. And I think after a couple of years as a bedside nurse, I I felt a little bit limited where I wanted to have a little bit more autonomy in the decision-making for the patients instead of just like implementing the orders. I wanted to actually do the orders and do medical decision-making. So that's what caused me to want to go back to pursue, finish my pre-med record, um, classes and um, pursue medicine. Yeah. So Dr. Bogle, it's interesting. So your family, you kind of grew up in the DMV and you ended up coming back to Howard for medical school. What went into your decision to attend Howard? I had a couple of friends who went to Howard for for other specialties for social work and pharmacy, and they had a really great experience. And um, I feel like one of the tenets of Howard is to serve the underserved. And that was something that was really important to me. And I love the DMV area, I think it's such a unique area in the country where it's so diverse, um, both racially as well as social economically. And I wanted to be able to take care of that patient population. In addition to the fact that my dad was continuing to be sick. So I wanted to be kind of near him in case anything was happening or went wrong. So I'm glad, glad I was able to, to be part of Howard. During the four years of medical school, were you always set on going into pediatrics or did you consider other options? I think I briefly considered emergency medicine and briefly considered surgery, but I think I was pretty set on, especially third and fourth year, really honed in that I do continue to like working with pediatric population compared to the adult population. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think you'll be interested. I was just in Howard to speak with one of the student organizations. I stopped in and saw Dr. Forrester. Oh, nice. Um, So we chatted for a little bit. Well, that's awesome. (laughs) <laughs> she had such an impact on students yeah. and especially you know folks going to peds um, yeah so when it came down to matching though you matched into pediatric residency at stanford um incredibly mm-hmm. impressive program but it was all the way across the country so how did you deal with that that change i think um it was a big shock when i matched at stanford it was definitely like my pipe dream where i was like oh this would be great to to go to Stanford one day. And then when I matched there, it was, it was super exciting. But then all of a sudden I was like, I have to now move across the country. And what am I going to do with all my stuff? And I think initially it was challenging because the East coast, West coast cultures are a little bit different, but the residency and the people at my co-residents were amazing. And I shortly made like my own little family there. So it was really great. And I feel like they implemented some more healthy practices than I might've otherwise had where I got into running and just eating a little bit better. So some of that California healthy lifestyle rubbed off on me a little bit. So I'm really grateful for my experience there. Yeah. If you, when you think back, what was one of the bigger challenges that you faced during residency? 
I think just um, residency itself is really challenging in itself. Uh, you have hard hours, you have a, a lot of information you have to learn at once. And I think I underestimated the amount of support you would need. So I think especially the first year and a half or so, going through those really hard times and not necessarily having having to also create your own friendships during like an already busy season was, I think, challenging in itself because I had to just rely on the people I had. I'm grateful I had great um, res- co-residents, but I think it was hard to kind of find my place in that area at first, especially because everything was so new. I didn't know anyone going to California. So it was um, challenging to just kind of re- reinvent your social network there. Yeah. Was it a large program, medium size or small? I imagine medium um, or large. I'd say it's probably medium to large. I'm like dating myself. I think it was a, a little more than 20, um, 20 residents per class. So, so it definitely had a lot to pull from. And it ended up one of my, I had a roommate there and she ended up being a really close friend that I still keep in contact with now. So it definitely made some great lifelong friends to Stanford. Um, and then that's not enough training yet. You You had to go <laughs> on and do some additional training. Did you know when you started residency that you wanted to specialize in pediatric cardiology? Yeah, I knew I wanted to specialize in uh, cardiology. Um, At the time, the match, you had to apply your second year of residency. So you had to kind of go go and intentionally starting residency of like having a research project and having good mentors to set up. Um, So I had to be quite intentional about that when I started residency. And I had great mentors at Stanford, certainly great exposure to a lot of different patient pathology as well. Um, and Stanford itself had like really great programs to empower you whatever direction or um, you wanted to go into. So they were really great in supporting me in that. Yeah. So you finished up residency out in California and you matched and moved kind of halfway back across the country. You ended up at Lurie Children's in Chicago, Illinois for your pediatric cardiology fellowship. What was your experience during fellowship? It was great. It was, I thought residency was hard and fellowship was certainly challenging as well. I was thinking it'd be great since I'm really interested in cardiology to just learn, just learn that subject. And it was really cool to learn the details of all of cardiology, but was certainly even more challenging than I anticipated compared to residency. But I feel like it definitely helped mature me as a clinician and helped mature me um, just as an adult with the gravity of responsibility you carry with those um, fellowship years. And I think looking back, it's still my foundation. I I pull back on as an attending now where I, I got to learn great experience, but had great teachers and great co-fellows too. Uh, the program itself was a lot smaller to pull from. I think we were lucky we had four fellows in our class, but usually it's three fellows per class. But all my co-fellows are really close and they're like a really fun group of people. So like we still send memes to each other and stuff. So that that makes a huge difference. <laughs> yeah. And how is that three years of training broken down? Like you went through different rotations, I assume. Uh, what all did you did you learn during fellowship? Yeah. So we learned the different parts of so specialties in cardiology. So we rotate with um, echocardio, um, echo, which is like the ultrasound of the heart. And then we learn electrophysiology where we learn the different arrhythmias as well as going to the um, electrophysiology lab where if there's um, an extra pathway in the heart, they find it and ablate it. And then we also learn cardiac catheterization, CICU, cardiac intensive care unit, and heart transplant, heart failure. So we kind of rotate throughout those as well as just general cardiology. Um, so we rotate throughout those throughout the three years. And then um, with each year, if you're interested in a subspecialty, you get to spend more time doing doing your subspecialty 
or general cardiology, if that's what you're interested in. So as a general pediatric cardiologist, what are some of the most common issues and and pathologies that you treat? So we see a lot of congenital heart disease. So patients that their hearts weren't formed properly. So that can range anywhere from atrial septal defects or ASDs to ventricular septal defects, what we consider kind of the bread and butter of pediatrics to um, taking care of patients that were born with half a heart or their hearts on the wrong side of the body. So you care for all that as a pediatric cardiologist um, from some people do fetal echocardiogram where they can diagnose that while they're in the womb. Um, and then we take care of them. Whoa, um, whoa, whoa. You said fetal <laughs> echo. So the baby's in, in, in the uterus. Yeah, and um, they can like, screen and detect if they have congenital heart disease. It's, it's pretty amazing. I do not have that skill, but um, it's pretty wow. cool that they can say, okay, this patient's going to be born with half a heart so that the family can be kind of informed about the the pathway um, in the future for them. And, um, and you just, you just put a probe on mom's belly and yeah, they just put a probe on mom's belly and it's a little challenging. Cause obviously if the baby moves, you can't, you just have to chase oh, it around man. a little bit. Um, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty cool to see. It's definitely continuing to grow. Um, but yeah, it's pretty cool that nowadays, I think before someone, a baby would come out blue and you're like, Oh no, what's the matter? And have to do an emergent echo on them. And that still does happen, especially for uh, patients that might lack prenatal care. They can't, they obviously can't get everything with fetal echo, but I think that's helped a lot of diagnosis, especially for what we call cyanotic heart diseases where they need intervention pretty early in life. Wow. And I think as you guys obviously get better at what you do, we have kids with congenital heart diseases that are living to adulthood and living these full lives. Yeah. How does that transition occur in in their care? Are they uh, managed by a pediatric cardiologist or when do they transition to adult cardiologists if they do? That's a good question. I think that's um, that changes by center, but there are adult congenital heart specialists. So usually those people um, are either med-peds where they went through med-peds residency and um, they can either go through adult cardiology fellowship or pediatric cardiology fellowship. And there's an additional subspecialty fellowship called adult congenital heart uh, fellowship for the most part now is the path that people go. Um, I think people that are older that have kind of been doing this for 20 plus years, they just kind of fell into it. Um, I think we usually transition around maybe in their 20s at some point. Sometimes some practitioners hold on to them a little closer if they have formed a bond um, with them. But generally speaking, the goal is to transition them kind of after college or so um, to an adult congenital specialist. So we see them. Yeah, it's cool. Like some people that have been doing this obviously a lot longer than I have have seen people from birth to, to adulthood. I think one person saw like their kids too afterwards, like for screening. So it's, it's kind of cool to have a subspecialty that you can still kind of have that primary care, like longevity with the patients. So Dr. Bogle, as a fellow, here's a question I haven't asked, but I I had some requests to kind of, um, talk about this as a fellow, you worked with residents. Yes. We worked with residents. Mm -hmm. How was the interaction between you and those residents, what were your expectations and, and how did that, I know it's different for each program, but what was the interaction like for you? Um, I enjoyed it. It was nice to teach the residents. Um, cardiology is such a subspecialty field. Um, you obviously change your, or I tried to change my teaching based on what their interests were, because if someone's going into endocrinology, they might not need to 
know all the stages of a single ventricle palliation that's not really relevant for their future. So we taught them how to read EKGs because I don't think we get a lot of education in that in residency, but it's really important. People are really interested in learning about murmurs and what those might represent. So I think we did a lot of bedside teaching, especially when they were on the rotation with us. And then we also tried to do, um, I don't remember the interval, but teaching about EKGs and then kind of just the general cyanotic heart diseases that you always get tested on on the boards and are important to identify, um, especially early in life if you're working in the ER pediatric um, outpatient, for example. Yeah. Well, what would you say was your expectation of those uh, medical stu- or those uh, medical students and mostly residents that rotated on your service? I think for the most part, I had an expectation for them to want to show some interest in it, even if they weren't going to go into cardiology and try and try and take a stab, for example, of reading the EKG on their own or trying to measure something called the QTC interval that we measure um, on the EKG machine. Because I think sometimes it's easy to just say, hey, we have a kid that has a murmur. Can you figure out what's the problem? And yeah, wanting them to take a couple steps uh, beyond that to say, okay, well, what do you think it is? What's on your differential? Or um, what do you think this EKG represents? Uh, because some of those skills you, you should possess as a general pediatrician. So I think just having the ownership a little bit of to think think through a little bit besides just identifying this is a cardiac problem to think through kind of um, what cardiac problem you might think it is or what big bucket cyanotic or acyanotic disease is. Is this an arrhythmia or not an arrhythmia? Um, I don't expect them to know the history of congenital heart disease or all the pathways of it, but just having a, an interest in taking somewhat ownership is my expectations I had. It's good. It's fantastic uh, advice. So Carmel, fellowship wasn't enough. <laughs> at the end, you went on to pursue additional training in advanced cardiac therapies at Boston Children's Hospital. At yeah. what point did you decide to go on for extra training and, and what led you to make that decision? I was interested in um, working with heart transplant and heart failure patients pretty early on. I think that was an interest I had in residency, which is um, part of the reason why I was really grateful to work at Lurie Children's because um, the director there at the time, Dr. Paul, was like a big mega person in pediatric heart failure, heart transplant. Mm. So it was really cool to work with her. Um, so I had that interest early on um, in pediatric cardiology, at least right now. A lot of times you have to do something beyond just general cardiology. You have to have a subspecialty. So it's not uncommon that people have to do fourth years. And I really liked the aspect of um, heart failure and heart transplant because you've got to be in both worlds, meaning that you could help uh, families and patients during a really acute time when they might present an acute heart failure and you had to help them in the ICU and navigate if they needed a ventricular assist device or um, needed to be put on a heart transplant list. But then you also got to work with families if they did have to go through that route and needed a heart transplant that you could then work with them in more of like the outpatient setting where you're just kind of checking in every couple of months to see how they're doing. And some of my mentors have had the pleasure of seeing their patients graduate college, get married, um, go on to do jobs. And so it's kind of cool to see both that acute and outpatient setting, which I think is is pretty unique. And I think, although adults have been doing it for quite some time, the ventricular assist devices or machines to kind of help people with failing hearts while they're waiting for a heart transplant has really taken off, I'd say, in the next last 10 years or so. So I think it's been cool to kind of be part of that community where that's becoming less of a rarity and more of kind of a mainstream or at least a, 
an available option to a lot of patients um, that otherwise might have not made it um, maybe 20 years ago. Yeah, it's pretty incredible because these ventricular assist devices, we I worked with them a lot at University of Chicago in residency, and they're big, right, for adults. And over the years, you can see how they started large and they started getting smaller and smaller. So when yeah. it comes to pediatric patients, or have they just gotten that small or are there pediatric-sized ventricular assist devices? There are some pediatric-sized um, ventricular assist devices. Um, the Berlin or S-Core is one that um, is, I don't, I don't think adults use that. Um, and they have sizes based on the patient's weight. And then we use a lot of the adult data, um, like HeartMates, um, for, for like our teenagers or our preteens, kind of depending on the size. I think they've been continuing to work with um, making a new ventricular assist device for babies that are very small because um, there are some more limited devices for like neonates or really small babies. Um, so that's still something that they're continuing to work on to optimize. Wow. Yeah. I can't even imagine a ventricular assist device in a neonate. Yeah. So kids are pretty cool though. It's like, you'll, you'll see them like really sick, like right after they get their ventricular assist device. And then especially the Berlin's it's a, um, extracorporeal device. So the device is outside the body. So you can see the blood going in and out of the pump. Um, and it's cool to see that like post-operative day one, they might be sedated and intubated. And then, um, as they're kind of waiting for their heart they're and they get better, like they're like playing, they're jumping around, they're like playing, like they're doing all this stuff with this Berlin where like usually the nurse or someone has to kind of follow them around with their actual machine. So I feel like that's part of the reason why I love kids is because like I don't think, I don't imagine you might see that with adults as much. Like kids still want to be kids no matter how sick they are. So it's cool to try and help them do that and help their development, even though they might be really sick. So you let them ambulate with the uh, device? Yeah, it's 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 pretty stable. Um, so you're like having palpitations. Oh. Over but yeah, it's like stable. So yeah, they can definitely ambulate. They play. Yeah, they can, they can do a lot of stuff with it. So it's cool. And... and- for the folks that, you know, to kind of conceptualize this, since it's uh, on, on a podcast, the access is through the jugular? Is it, or, or no, how is, is how are they access? They're accessed through the, um, like it's an open heart surgery. So they have it, that have the device, and then they have what we call the drive lines that come out of the body. But it's um, it's in the chest, chest wall area that they have two, what we call kind of drive lines or tubes that come out of their body. So the pump for the Berlin specifically is outside the body, uh, but it's okay. in the chest area. And and these are mostly bridge to transplants? For the most part, they're bridge to transplants. I think uh, for the Berlin, it's definitely a bridge to transplant, at least at this point. Uh, but for some of the patients that have a, a heart mate, those can be sometimes bridged to what we call destination or patients that just have a, have a ventricular assist device and Sometimes they elect not to undergo transplant or for some other reason, they might not be a transplant candidate. So sometimes these patients are just on it, um, on it for the duration of their life. And Hmm. um, some people have preferred that instead of going the transplant route. So it's been a nice option for them. And so how long was your advanced cardiac therapies fellowship? It was a year. A year. Intense year, but it was it was really great. I feel like I got to work with like these rock stars every day, so it was a really great privilege to work with all of the people there. Fantastic! And then you'd finally had enough training, and you started working in Maryland, and you got a job in academic medicine. What was that transition like? It was definitely challenging um, to all of a sudden kind of be on your own, especially after 
kind of being a chronic student or trainee for like seven years. Um, it was nice to kind of be on your own so that if you had an idea, you know, people all of a sudden listen to you a little bit more. Then it was also, you know, a little scary to not necessarily have someone to be like, hey, this is what I think. Is this okay or is this not okay? And you obviously fall back on your mentors, but it definitely put made me put my big girl pants on a little bit more where I really had to be confident. And I think it challenged me. In medicine, you always are wanting to stay abreast in the research and stay abreast in the newest guidelines, but especially... I think kind of being out on your own, you really want to make sure, you know, just to, it encourages you even more to stay on top. And it's been nice. One good thing about the pandemic is I think the virtual conferences and virtual learning sessions have been more accessible than I think they were before. So it's been nice to kind of um, be part of the pediatric heart failure, heart transplant society, because we have like monthly meetings, um, monthly educational meetings and um, a lot of subspecialty groups if you have an interest in it. So it's really to me, at least brought the community closer, even though we're all in different areas. That's fantastic. And so what's a typical week like for you? So I'm, um, I have training in um, advanced um, cardiac therapies, but I also work as a general cardiologist. So usually, um, usually during the week, if I'm not on inpatient, I see outpatients um, usually three or four days a week. And see them in clinic and it can range from people that just have some chest pain or palpitations or dizziness to patients that have one side of their heart um, that is on different stages of in between surgeries. And then I also take care of my heart transplant uh, patients and keeping up with them and all their surveillance as well. And then I read echoes one or two days a week as well. So it's been a good diverse task to do. Busy. Are you working five days a week or four days a week an academic day or, or how's that? Yeah, I usually work five days a week or maybe four and a half or half a day. I can catch up on clinical work or research. Um, but yeah, for the most part, it's usually usually like four and a half or four to five days a week. Um, we got wrong call every once in a while. So when we're on call for that night, usually we get the day off, which is nice to kind of re- take, a, take a rest. So it's been good. When you're on call, it's uh, over the phone? Yeah, it's it's over the phone call with the possibility that you might need to go in if there's like an emergent echo or something emergent happens. Um, but um, it's by, by phone at first, at least. You mentioned that there's other subspecialties for pediatric cardiology. What are some of those subspecialties? So there's advanced cardiac therapies, which takes care of the heart failure, heart transplant children. There's echocardiogram where they can... Um, specialize in reading echoes. And those are usually the ones that specialize in fetal echocardiogram or um, doing cardiac CTs or MRIs. There's cardiac catheterization. There's cardiac um, electrophysiology or EP. Um, I feel like I'm missing one more. Um, There's also a preventative medicine that you can do um, or some of those subspecialties. And then CIC or ICU, um, if you want to go into being a CICU trained doctor. Well, yeah, I had no idea that uh, all those sub subspecialties. Yeah, <laughs> just like to make it as as complicated as possible for everyone. <laughs> so let's talk about healthcare disparities because you know a lot of these kids that are sick, you know, probably or or maybe don't have the best insurance, and you know, obviously probably can't pay for this out of pocket or their their families can't. How does the system work that folks that don't have means are able to? get the care they need for their kids? I think at least from a pediatric standpoint, I think we've been fairly good with that. So that if someone doesn't have health care, 
we'll find a way to either, especially if it's emergent, we'll find a way to cover it, whether that's the hospital absorbing the cost or putting them on emergent um, Medicaid. Um, so I think for the most part, we, we don't turn patients away for, for, med, for any procedure they need, need, especially if it's emergent. Um, I think sometimes if their insurance laps, then we kind of do whatever we can working with our social workers or um, working with the primary care to get them in as soon as possible. So I think that's one cool thing about pediatrics is we don't, we certainly won't ever turn someone away if they need emergent care. And I think especially sometimes if they can't afford their medicine um, or their copay is too high, I think we definitely work with them to try and try and make sure that they meet those needs and that, you know, a child shouldn't have to suffer just because the parents, I mean, no one should actually have to suffer. They can't afford it, but especially children where they really truly have no control over it, yeah. um, have really come together. So I think that's been helpful. I think it's been cool to, one thing I like about the job is just being able to educate families, especially those that might not be exposed to medicine since medicine is really complex for a healthcare provider, let alone someone who has no experience or might have limited healthcare literacy uh, so just trying to break down those topics to break down, like, this is a picture of a heart. This is what your child has. And kind of acknowledging that people only retain 30% of what you're talking about anyways. So the fact that we get to see these patients really frequently can kind of hopefully hone in the message and educate them. That's good. Yeah. Thanks for kind of breaking that down. And it's incredible to hear your story and the progress that you've made since we were last rotating together on the wards at Howard University yeah. Hospital. Yeah, it's been cool. So looking back, what would you tell yourself um, all those years ago as a medical student, you know, just starting out to process? I, I was speaking with some of the students at Howard and they were, a lot of them were kind of confused, didn't know what specialty to pursue, where to go from medical school. So what would you say to kind of help make recommendations? Should they focus on sub? specialization or stick with basic um, specialties or how would you help somebody navigate this? I think if, if they have an interest in pediatric cardiology or if they have an interest in a subspecialty, I think it's helpful to talk to those subspecialists. And I think a lot of times they think at Howard and other undergraduate communities, I've certainly been um, reached out to by some of them just to talk to them for 30 minutes or so and just get an idea of what their what their job is because I certainly didn't know all the subspecialties as an undergrad and sometimes it's a subspecialty you never thought of that might be something you end up doing for your career so I think the more exposure you get the better I think when you're in medical school you don't have a lot of free time so like giving yourself realistic goals I guess of like this semester I'm going to talk to one person of a specialty interest I have is helpful especially mm -hmm. your first two years and using those electives during your clinical years to really see if, is this something I actually want to do um, especially in pediatrics I think sometimes people say oh I like working with kids I like babysitting and then they go into pediatrics <laughs> and they're like oh this is actually sick kids that like are crying or bleeding so making sure that that liking of kids translates to liking sick kids and working with sick kids families because um, it's different than maybe playing with them at a camp or doing babysitting. So I think getting that ex clinical exposure is really key because you're going to be doing this for, I don't know, 15, 20 plus years. So making sure you, you like it. Very helpful. Um, as we wrap up, so Carmel, one of the interesting things about you, besides you're just an awesome person that we bumped into each other a couple times in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And, and over the years, but you invented a holiday. <laughs> yes, it's an international holiday. It's called Narwhal Day, and it's a day to celebrate the unique people in your life since Narwhal is a unicorn of the sea. 
So um, it's been celebrated in California, Chicago, Italy, the DMV area and beyond. Um, so um, thank you for allowing me this platform to allow it to go even farther. <laughs> so, so what day is a uh, Narwhal Day? Narwhal Day is March 24th and it will be an upcoming Thursday this in 2022. I can't believe it's 2022 next year. <laughs> Time flies. I'll definitely keep it on my calendar because I think I missed celebrating this past uh, yeah. Narwhal Day. Yeah, that's exciting. We'll have to, uh, everyone can fl- flood the Instagram feeds with Narwhal Day. There we go. Well, Dr. Bogle, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your incredibly unique and inspiring story about becoming a pediatric cardiologist. Thank you so much, Dr. Bradley. It was an honor to be on your show. I hope you have a happy day. Awesome. And and folks, thanks for joining us. Tune in next week because representation matters. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley, your friendly neighborhood anesthesiologist.